Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join your hosts, Phil Dark and Dr. Karen Hutchison. Hey guys, welcome to the Think Orphan podcast. This is Dr. Karen. Happy Holy Week. I hope you guys are enjoying this week as we look forward to celebrating the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us in our podcast today. Phil, who's on the show? Today we have the uh, other part of the interview I was able to do with Mark and Jan Foreman. If you remember them from the Refugee Crisis series, Mark had made the uh, movie Forgotten Hope about Iraq. And uh, Mark is also the pastor of North Coast Calvary Church. And together, Mark and Jan um, wrote the book Never Say No. And that, that's really what we're talking about today on this, on this episode is this book. It's about parenting. And, uh, you know, never say no is not really uh, what you think it might mean. They, they said no during their parenting at points, but uh, I'm not going to get much more to that because I don't want to ruin the suspense. So we are going to have just, a, you know, it's just finishing up the conversation that I had with them. Uh, and, I, and I hope that you really are able to engage it and think about it. Afterwards, uh, we're going to have a little conversation between Karen, Karen and myself uh, to uh, hopefully address maybe some of the things you're thinking about. But really, if, if you're thinking this doesn't work for me or this does work for me or whatever it may be out there, you know, I encourage you to engage the conversation with us and, uh, you know, send us some comments, send us some questions, send us things we can hopefully engage with, with you. And, uh, you know, cause you're really a part of all this and, uh, we want you to, to do that through those questions. We also want you to do that through, uh, uh, rating, reviewing the podcast on, uh, on iTunes. You can also just send us your thoughts and comments on, on Facebook or via email. I'm loving the, the different things I'm getting back from, from guests, um, that have, that have talked to me about the impact it's had on them from audience members, you folks out there for the impact it's had on them. And, you know, who knows if, if you're, if you send me something and if, you know, maybe you're out there, you may, might even be a guest. And, and if you're a guest out there, you might even become co-host someday. You know, that's something to aspire to Ask Karen. She was able to do that. So, um, you know, Karen, what, how has that changed your life? Oh, I, it's been such a, just a blessing and it's been a real privilege to um, get to know people from the podcasts and just learn so, so much. And of course, I mean, hanging out with you, Phil, every week is pretty awesome as well. That's probably the, the worst part about it, but you know, that's, that's okay. That's okay. It's something that, uh, you know, you can, you, it can't be a perfect job. Otherwise everyone would be just clamoring to get it. So anyway, now we're back to the serious part of the show. And that is this great interview I was able to do with Mark and Jan Foreman. So I do hope that you're able to learn as much as I did from this amazing couple and get out your pens and papers and take some notes and, uh, engage with us as we really hope that you will. So here it goes. Well, Mark and Jan, it is so great to have you here with me. I, I am very excited for this because uh, we don't get to do in-person interviews very often, and I love both of you on top of it. So this Thank is just you. a total great bonus. Great to see you, Phil. Yeah. Yeah. And then also, my wife is in this room with us, mm -hmm. too, and she may add in some two cents here and <laughs> yeah, there. And if she does, <laughs> that's that extra <laughs> voice that yeah. you're hearing in here. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure it'll be very, very sage wisdom if she does add anything. Mm -hmm. So... Um, but uh, yeah, we're, we we get to have a great conversation today, and I, and about your book, Never Say No, which was a fantastic book that I strongly recommend out there. 
uh, and also uh, a movie, Mark, that you've been able to, to make with some, some great people called Iraq, The Forgotten Hope. And uh, so we'll, we're just gonna, gonna get started by talking about Never Say No. And uh, this book title is, uh, is definitely not exactly what it says. And I know you've, you've talked a lot of interviews about this, but can you just share with our, our audience kind of what you meant with the, the, by the title and, and really why you wanted to write the book? Well, uh, I, I find it ironic, uh, you know, we, obviously we're provocative because every parent says, are you kidding me? That's, my kid needs a thousand more no's. Uh, why would you say that? But I respond to that to say, it's interesting that you as a parent thought I was talking about behavior hmm. uh, when I was talking about opportunities, that that is the go-to of parents that we think we're raising dogs and horses that, that we need to figure out how to get them to behave when actually we're raising little human beings that God has given us with all these opportunities to say yes to, in, to enter into their world. Mm. Uh, so that was a, a, an expression Jan and I used with each other as our kids were being raised when it was difficult to say yes to, um, would you get down on your hands and knees and play with me? Would you paddle out and surf with me? Would you do rock and roll with me? Uh, when it's inconvenient, we'd look at one another and whisper to each other, never say no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, we're so glad that we didn't. <laughs> mm -hmm. right. I think that's God's parenting style with us too as mm -hmm. well in terms of he focuses on the relationship. And he never says no to us in that sense. He's always, you know, open to us being with him. And so we just want to pay that kind of relationship forward to our kids. Yeah, right. Now, and I, I know I was convicted many times reading through the book, you know, with five kids. No comes out of my mouth more than I want it to. And the kids have said to me, Dad, you always say no. And mm, Spiritual gift. I, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I have the spiritual gift of strictness, according to my one child. But, uh, but, uh, but uh, it's something that I think that reading through the book, it, it was some great um, examples for us. And the three, the three sections of the book are, it begins with me, which we're going to talk about in a minute, a place to grow, and launching into life. And I think you can... You can hear those three things and think of a lot of different things. Um, and I strongly recommend either everyone who has not already read this book, pick it up, read it, you know, just study through it. And then also there's all kinds of good stuff online with them, Mark and Jan going through it on videos and different things with literally going through the whole book. Um, but today I want to I focus on a few things. And the first is, uh, it begins with me. Mm. And as a parent, you know, we're so, like you said, it's mm. behavior. It's we want to fix the issue. We want to fix the kid mm. and we want to just go on with whatever else we have, especially in suburbia, especially mm. in the U.S., but really wherever. I think that that's mm. probably a, a challenge. So what do you mean by that? With, with, mm. uh, and, and how can we go and really start with ourselves and understanding ourselves? Once a child is born, uh, what's really happening is I'm not only raising a child, but they're raising me. They're forcing me to look at my own life, my own way I was raised, the way I think, and I have choices constantly to make. Do I want to change as I see my child reflecting back to me uh, who I am? And he or she forces me to ask the question, who do I want to be when I grow up? Right. And the other question is, how many more of me do I want? Mm -hmm. You know, because they're hardwired to imitate and mimic us. And so I will by default parent the way I was parented unless 
I, I pick up the, the deck of cards I was dealt, the parenting cards I was dealt from my childhood and decide what do I want to keep, mm -hmm. what do I want to discard, what wasn't even in the deck. Um, so right. in, in our world, that affected how we, for example, communicated to our kids. Mark, the love language was teasing mm -hmm. in his childhood home. Mm -hmm. In my language, uh, in, my, in my home, it was, you know, you never express affection. You're just mostly critical. Well, we needed to learn a new love language in terms of our home life, but it, it had to be intentional because often out of our own mouth would come just what we'd heard growing right. up. And I think that's often true. Yeah, absolutely. And, and mm -hmm. when I was reading through the book, you know, kind of extrapolating this for the, for the ministry too, like with the work mm -hmm. that we're doing and a lot mm -hmm. of our listeners are doing around the world, you know, you can take this same principle and you th mm -hmm. maybe think of When Helping Hurts and what Brian Fickard talks about and When Helping Hurts about we're all broken mm -hmm. and we need to start mm -hmm. with ourselves and understand our own brokenness if we're ever going to help anybody else. It really is. It's a, it's a great adventure. Mm -hmm. uh, it shouldn't it shouldn't frighten us, you know, when you have this little eight-pound child you're driving home with. <laughs> it, 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 it does, but it's a great adventure. It's But it, we're not... It's, everything's fluid. We're not just raising this child and we're static. We as an adult are continuing to change. Our marriage is changing. And we get these new choices, these new opportunities God gives us. Uh, and that's, you know, we're all in the process of the Imago Dei. The mm -hmm. child, the parent, the marriage. And, and that's the adventure. Yeah, absolutely. So. We go from that um, to another part of this, really, when we're talking about, and you alluded to it in, in one of your, uh, uh, in one of the responses to that last discussion, but one of the chapters is called Say Yes to Delight, and mm. I just love that, too, to really, and this really just reminds, reminded me to really study my child and understand each of my children for who they are and to delight in that. Mm. And one of the things you talked about, Mark, and I think you just recently tweeted about it as well, but it's just, you know, we need to rewrite Cats in the Cradle, mm. right? And we need to yeah. change that narrative yeah. um, in our home. And so can you just speak to that a little bit about ways we can do that and what that, what you meant by that? Well, the story behind it is um, I was uh, confronted by a friend about how he viewed God and, and he was talking about how much God delighted in him and giving him a piano and giving him a this and giving him a that. And I drove home kind of angry that night, not kind of very angry because it wasn't the God I experienced. And, um, and uh, so when I got alone with God that night, I uh, just poured my heart out to him and literally cried. I think I was about 28 at the time and um, I said God if if you could ever speak to me this would be a great time mm -hmm. and I waited in silence and three words came back to me that I'd never heard growing up never heard in my childhood um, and the words were I enjoy you mm -hmm. and I thought could that really be the voice of God uh, or was I a heretic mm -hmm. or was I using humanistic thinking and projecting that onto God and then I thought of some scriptures that where God actually says that, that he says he will delight in us and joy over us with singing. Mm. And I thought, I don't hear that often from the pulpit. I don't hear that uh, from the Bible teachings I hear. I hear that, that God accepts me just the way I am. Um, but if you ever said that to somebody at lunch, 
uh, it doesn't go very far. If they said, you know, do you like me? And you said, well, I accept you just the way you are. It's a bit of a passive slap to say, there's a lot of things I don't like, but I'm going to put up with you. So it doesn't endear me to God to hear that he just only accepts me the way I am. But if he delights in me, he's crossing over the 50-yard line to want to be with me in every way of life, area of life. And it totally flipped my view of God, and it made me want to raise kids that way. And as I talk to parents, I, the joke is I ask them, do you love your child? And they always 100% say yes, and almost offended that I would ask the question. But then if I ask, do you like them? Uh, they'll laugh, <laughs> meaning there is a lot about them I don't like. And uh, because of that, we really don't into, enter into parts of their lives to enjoy them. Uh, a dad who wants their child to grow up playing soccer or football, and their son wants to play the violin, the dad may not like that part of their son's life. And we have an incarnational decision to make whether to enter into their lives, enjoying them for who they are, or only enjoying them when they do what I like them to do. Mm. And, and a kid can tell, a child can tell whether a parent likes them or not. And out of that becomes misbehavior and acting out or finding peers that are going to enjoy them because the parents don't. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's probably uh, the, the holy grail of the book, you know, this, mm -hmm. this concept. Yeah. And kids will read our faces as a mirror to see who they are. So they actually form opinions about themselves as reflected back in our face and in our responses to what they enjoy. And I think that's a great example of how we, we wanted to change up our parenting style from our parents because our parents were who they were and they expected us to enter their world. Well, this is a flip around where right. you, you study your child. And I think you can tell from an early age um, what kids really enjoy. And you can almost connect those dots to when they are an adult and you see the trajectory of their life. Am I going to appreciate that and honor it and be and cheer, cheer them and enter into that aspect and grow myself to learn to like ballet or to enjoy right. cooking or whatever it might be? And then that actually propels them into who God has called them to be. And it also sustains a lifelong relationship as well as gives them... Um, a sense of, of purpose and uh, a real appreciation for who God made them to be. This is perhaps the most challenging thing of parenting. Mm. Uh, entering incarnationally, copying Jesus in the Bethlehem drama, of entering their language, discovering at each level and stage of life, two years old, six years old, 12, 16, who are you? How do I get to know you and enter into your life? And it doesn't mean that if they like the violin, that I play the violin, but I want to go to their recitals. Um, for me, uh, it meant learning to wrestle with them when they were two and four years old. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have time, I was exhausted, and I just got on the floor and wrestled with them. Later on, it meant uh, sitting around playing uh, music with them. Later on, it meant taking up surfing again mm -hmm. and paddling out with them to enter into their world and be interested in what they were interested in. Right. 
and have it be real, right? Not yeah. not mm-hmm. faking it because they can Mm-mm. read through that in a minute, yeah. mm-hmm. right? To actually care not about r- it because begrudgingly, they but but actually mm-hmm. uh, becoming missional, becoming anthropologist into that Aboriginal's world, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, no, mm-hmm. and and you, I mean, you just hit that too. I mean, I I guarantee there are people out there listening thinking this is what you're talking about with the work that I'm doing and name the country yeah. around the world coming in because mm. you need to enter into that and understand yeah. it and mm-hmm. you just you know that so many of these things are absolutely that way with our kids that sometimes it is a foreign child yeah. in our in our like literally <laughs> with a lot of our audience here sometimes literally there is a foreign <laughs> yeah. child but then with our own biological children we go where the heck did this kid yeah, come yeah. from exactly. you know anybody exactly. with multiple kids knows that right yeah, like, yeah. Okay, that one makes sense but that one I don't know you know and, and uh, and on any given day, they all could be in that boat of the we don't know part. But hmm. but yeah, so to actually, and that goes to just, you know, knowing ourselves, knowing where we're impatient, you know, studying, you know, maybe empathy isn't my strong suit, but I need to be empathetic to my kid. Yeah. Um, and what does that look like? So, so going from, you know, the idea of really delighting and studying and knowing and understanding and... Um, being very intentional. The the next chapter I want to talk about is, is say yes to mess, mm. right? So the idea of creativity and unstructured play and really mm-hmm. cultivating uh, creativity, really in a world. Um, all the studies are showing that you know five year old kids can come up with thousands of uses for a paperclip, mm-hmm. but a high school senior can come up with four or five, mm. and. Our world is really discouraging creativity, and so what? Mm. What were you guys talking about in that chapter? And Jan, you had a great quote that said, "Every child is Michelangelo looking mm-hmm. for a canvas." Absolutely. And so, can you speak to that? Well, I think if you just look back to the original God's original two kids in the Garden of Eden, there was only one tree that was off limits. All the other trees were free for sampling, so they had free. They were free-range humans, and um, so we had we co- tried to copy that. We mm. wanted them to be raised with the idea that the world is one big yes. So we had what I would call an open home where they could play in any room they wanted. And um, I would set up different PlayStations in the rooms and change it up. But they, there was no room that was off limits. I grew up in a home where I could only have toys in my room. All the other rooms were for the adults. And I don't have one memory of my mom or dad playing with me. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they did, but it's not, it's not vivid. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to change that in our home and that would give them the freedom to make choices. I think that's really important for God um, with our relationship is that we have these, we have good choices and we wanted to give our kids a lot of good choices and exposing them to then, especially as they aged, the good in culture. I think you can create in a child an appetite for the good by exposing them to good literature and plays and yeah. music of all kinds and even tastes. We would go to the grocery store and buy weird things we'd never tried. It, it fosters in a child um, or it enhances their natural curiosity. And you want that to be a lifelong skill. I just heard the other day that the people who live longest are the most curious. There's mm-hmm. a connection. But I think it's because they're still growing. Mm-hmm. And we especially don't want to put fences up too young for our kids. Yes. And that's messy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I had people that would come over and step over toys and say, you, you run a preschool here. And I had to be okay with that and realize, well, it's a season. They'll clean it up at the end of the day. But for right now, we're having fun mm-hmm. and they're exploring. Yeah. When they had a band in, in their bedroom, mm-hmm. um, that was 
in an auditory way, messy. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, because we all listen to it, even though they're back in their bedroom. And uh, I, I do think this expression, pay me now or pay me later, uh, does pay off if you decide, well, I'm not going to allow this, 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 this. Uh, oftentimes their lives later on can become very messy as they're t still trying to figure it out. Right. But we wanted them to know that we wanted them uh, to explore, to experiment, uh, to be the mad scientist, the adventurer, uh, that, that that was encouraged and allowed. Absolutely. I think that one of the quotes from the book is, creativity involves painstaking trial and error. We don't mm -hmm. want to deny our, ch our kids this privilege. Mm -mm. And uh, I just love that. It's not mm -hmm. like, a, it's not a negative thing, right? It's mm -mm. a great thing. The air part is it part is. of learning. One yeah. of the ironies of, uh, you know, being a theologian, one of the ironies when people are unpacking the concept of the image of God, what does that mean? Um, usually you, you get this philosophical, theological idea of, well, we're, we're rational, uh, we're, we're bipods that are different than monkeys because we do this, 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 and we, we have these um, out-of-context answers, but if you go back to the context of Genesis 1, the one thing we know about God, He was big and He was creative. Mm -hmm. <laughs> let there be, let there be. Absolutely. This mad artist yeah. <laughs> is creating the universe, but that's not what we often think of when we think of the Imago Dei. That, right. that it, it should be the very first thing we think exactly. that every human being uh, is creative by nature, mm -hmm. and it, it'll express itself in different ways and in different magnitudes. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Our mutual friend Andy Crouch in his book Culture Making talks a lot about that, right? That we're we're image of God and he's a creator and a mm -hmm. cultivator. And mm -hmm. we've taken that out of our society for some reason as mm -hmm. what we're teaching our kids, what we're teaching mm -hmm. in school, what you know, there's one right answer. That's kinda of what exactly. they're telling us in school. Yeah. It's like, well, maybe. But mm -hmm. you know, in math, yeah. you know, maybe. But yeah. you you know, even there People, kids can make arguments, and they do, mm -hmm. you know, how, how that's wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and I think, too, is, is, and I think you said it, It's whether it was in the book or, or one of the interviews I was listening to, Jan, you were talking about, but we're not just having mass chaos mm -hmm. ruling the, you know, the kids aren't, you know, the, the inmates aren't running the asylum, right? right. You know, there are boundaries still that's in the right. midst of the creativity. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that? For a sure. Bit? We wanted our kids to be able to color outside the lines, but also inside the lines. So once you see a child expressing interest or passion in some area, whether it's music or engineering, or maybe they got good people skills, you start to foster that. So for us, for example, in music lessons, once they agreed to study piano, then they would agree to it for a set time, a year or something, and there was practice required and they, they signed up. So maybe two weeks later, they're not so excited about it, but they, that was a commitment mm -hmm. they made. We made sure they followed through on those commitments. And um, Tim uh, once said in an interview that he felt like piano lessons gave him more than just note learning, that it gave him life learning. That mm -hmm. taught him that he could tackle something difficult and finish it and learn it and move on to something else. So there's a lot involved when we put the structure next to the creativity. It's a uh, I used to teach art to kids, and so we'd start with the the scratch paper where we'd learn the rules, perspective, color wheel, you know, shapes. And then I would give them 
the blank piece of paper. I think without the scratch paper and learning the rules, the blank piece of paper might be a little too freeform. Right. But once they got that, they were ready because they'd practiced a little bit. So I think you need both the rules, so to speak, some boundaries, some skill learning in whatever area it is, whether it's soccer or, you know, cooking or whatever your child likes or learning bugs, you know, learning mm -hmm. the names and so forth. That empowers you actually right. in creativity to actually do good work. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to kind of transition now to talk about something you again alluded to in, in the talking about the freedom and the creativity is really helping our kids to be literate in their culture and in the both local and global culture, right? In, in, our, in our world that we are, we are citizens of this world. Um, and, you, and there's a quote from the book that says, we want to grow kids who are actively engaging in culture, not just passively influenced by it. Mm -hmm. uh, so you talked about introducing them to a broad range of different cultures and communities, teaching them discernment, um, really, so that they can discern their likes and dislikes mm -hmm. um, from an informed perspective and not just what they're told or not what mm -hmm. society's telling them or not what you're telling them or whatever it may mm -hmm. be. So. I want you to speak to, you know, tell our audience really what you're thinking about when you say, you know, why cultural literacy is so important and how we can cultivate it in our kids. Uh, yeah, I think that's who God is. I mean, that is the gospel in a nutshell. Uh, I can't think of anything more cross-cultural than heaven to earth, deity to humanity, um, and Jesus coming and eating our food, speaking our words. So, so he modeled it for us, but I think the, the mistake that often has been made is that we, we raise children oftentimes in, in what we would consider to be primarily only a Christian culture, and then we expect them to, at the age of 28 to make this leap, and suddenly they're bicultural, or suddenly they're Daniel living in... Uh, Babylon or Esther in Persia, that it's just not going to happen. They're going to stay in their Christian ghetto if we don't give them the tools early on. So in our home, um, we we had people of all faiths, uh, all colors, all shapes and sizes in our home, all types of food, um, and uh, I th hopefully they knew that we loved them all, that, that no one got more love because they were exactly like we were. And I think they saw that we were missional in our intent. Um, and yet we still had opinions and wanted them to have opinions uh, in regards to culture. But I don't think there's any benefit in being believers who lecture culture or are just mad or mean towards uh, mainstream culture. We want to have people who know how to live and breathe and move in it in, in a winsome, loving way. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, as Jan alluded to earlier, with discernment. Right. And I think friendship is really the centerpiece. We want our kids to, to know how to be a good friend. And so we tried to model that. In a, and I, I would agree with what Mark said. The mealtime was a really mm. important time because these little kids could sit at the table and hear these conversations and enter in and ask questions later right. and then um, to, to do that themselves as they reached out to their friends in, in the community. They can Absolutely. learn that at a young age. 
Yeah, and I think in that, in the idea of with discernment, that implies something you also talk about in the book, that goodness is not relative, mm -mm. right? There are absolutes. Yeah. There is an absolute that we believe mm -hmm. in the scriptures, and that's where it's coming from. Um, but, and the, but the difference is, I think, oftentimes uh, parochial believers can live in fear, mm -hmm. uh, almost with a castle mentality right. of that um, we occasionally let down the drawbridge we're going to have an evangelistic meeting, but the rest of the time we're barricaded behind the castle mm -hmm. uh, with the motto, if it moves, shoot it. Right. <laughs> we'll ask questions later. And uh, that just can't be. We have to break down the walls of the castle and have a different model mm -hmm. uh, than a castle mentality, uh, being with the people incarnationally. But, um, but with a different model, we create maybe what would be uh, my model is that of the nucleus of a biological cell, that the nucleus knows who it is, but it can allow uh, other entities to pass through the wall of the cell and also excrements to go outside the wall of the cell. But the, the nucleus is not threatened, so we have things like truth and beauty and goodness, uh, That and, and I'm sure there's others that we could delineate as being part of the nucleus. And, and those aren't up for grabs. Right. Uh, and we look to, to the Word of God to define what that is. But that, that allows us to not be threatened when someone of a different worldview comes near me. Mm -hmm. uh, because I know who I am, and, um, but I also know the mission that I'm, I'm about. It allows me to listen, for example, to music. There, you know, over the years historically, there's been this thing of, in quotation marks, that we would call Christian music, and right. and, and I guess what we meant by that is that music was that was either uh, praising God, evangelizing people, or teaching people, and those are the only three ways. But the question has to become has to be made was Bach making Christian music when there were no lyrics uh, you know and you as well this beautiful art uh, can be, be bringing glory to God and then we have to ask ourselves someone uh, fallen but in the image of God that's making beautiful art is that good right and um, then you have the evidential power of beauty saying well actually it is good and I'm not threatened by that, and, and I can begin to move into art, into music, literature, into politics, uh, looking for this, this good that allows me to meet with all people right. uh, without being threatened. And I think that's why we wanted to raise kids with fat souls. You know, they were, they were just so satiated with, with good in, in all areas, you know, sampling John Coltrane, and, um, you know, Picasso, Gary Larson, just all mm -hmm. aspects of culture that you can find these these threads and the evidences of God's image. And then if that's again creating that cultural taste so that you can actually hopefully create your own good someday. Right. That was mm -hmm. the goal, that they could enter into that culture and be more of an influence, not just a consumer. Absolutely. But they had so internalized that goodness that God would summon in some unique way, give them the ability to be in that conversation. Absolutely. And I must say, their palettes are much larger than ours right. now. Mm. I mean, in terms of when I talk with them, you know, I might argue that I'm the educated one, but they've, they're far better read mm -hmm. than I. Right. 
that they know far more about music, about art, about uh, culture, mm. inter intercultural uh, issues, different cultures. Uh, I'm amazed. I learned so much from them now, but hopefully some of that came from the home they were raised in. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm looking around your office right now and seeing that not only do you have a bunch of books, but they're actually organized into sections like a bookstore. So to say they're more well read than you, that's saying something right there. So that, that's, that's impressive. That's impressive. Um, no, and I think that, too, I mean, what I, there's a, there's a story, I think that puts a lot of flesh onto what you're saying here. And you probably can, you, you're nodding over here, you may know what I'm talking about, but the Led Zeppelin story that, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine before this, and he goes, oh yeah, that story. If you've heard John, I mean, if you've heard John, if you've heard Mark talk about um, this book, you've heard him talk about this story out there, but can you just share that for the people who haven't heard um, when you, when, when John yeah. and Tim were, what, 13 or so? And yeah, and they're starting their Led Zeppelin cover band, right. um, uh, unbeknownst <laughs> to me. <laughs> so, it, it, but you have to know that, that the context was completely parochial. The mm -hmm. church was shooting at everything that had to do with right. rock and roll, uh, saying that either the origins of rock and roll were the devil or uh, playing certain music backwards which right. was at the time yeah, called yeah. backmasking, mm -hmm. uh, that it had secret messages mm -hmm. that were occultic. And so there was this strong protectionism going on in the church. And, and of course, I had played rock and roll and in my BC days, and I was not a believer, and, and that was very psychedelic in those days. And one of the bands that we covered in my day was Led Zeppelin. And um, and one day out of John's bedroom, I hear uh, the notes of "Whole Lot of Love" Led Zeppelin coming out of there, right. and I just kind of freaked out as a parent, you know, uh, just like this is not happening. <laughs> uh, and I just wanted to go in with a big foot and put my foot down, and and I could hear all the church voices behind me saying, you got to stop this. If you play this song backwards, it's of the devil. Right. And, you know, what will your kids become? Uh, you know, they're already already going to go in, on to drugs. You know? <laughs> and, and, and there they are. And so, But fortunately, I stopped and prayed before I went in, <laughs> asking for God's wisdom. And right. so I went in with a smile and uh, terrified inside, but went in with a smile and said, so what's going on? And um, they said, hey, Dad. Uh, listen to this riff. Isn't this cool? And they're playing it. And I realized they had no clue as to the lyrics. And they were just learning music. And I said, well, tell me what's going on. Oh, Dad, we, this band, Led Zeppelin, we want to learn a lot of the riffs, make us better musicians. We're, and I just thought, okay. And it was all innocence. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what do I do? Uh, do I follow the voices of, of the church or or do I, what do I do? So I, I went away for a few moments to pray. And uh, so I was just off the map. There was no one leading me. And I just went and I said, okay, uh, we're gonna do Zeppelin. We're gonna do it this way. We're gonna, you're gonna learn the music, but we're gonna have conversations about the lyrics. And I want you guys to decide what songs you feel in your conscience you wanna play or not play. And I'm going to let you make that decision. Um, and I just thought, I hope I'm doing the right thing. Uh, so a week later, um, 
I went in to see how they're doing, and I saw a set list, which was really funny because they had no gigs yet. Right, right, right. Yeah, but they were ready. <laughs> they had a set list on the ground, and they had one song crossed out. And I said, so tell me about that song. And it was a Zeppelin song, and they said, oh, Dad, we don't want to play that song. That's a bad song. Mm. I said, suit yourself. Right. And I walked out, closed the door, and I thought, yes, <laughs> because I, I don't want to be their umpire for the rest of their right. life. Ball strike, good song, bad mm -hmm. song, you know, and some parents are like that, yeah. still very controlling. Sure. And I thought already at an early age, this inner umpire mm -hmm. was growing inside of them and they were choosing what songs they wanted to play. Absolutely. Yeah, that was fantastic. I, that was even a little extra from the other times I heard you tell the story, so I'm glad I asked. I'm glad I asked. <laughs> um, now, that's super encouraging every time I hear it, because mm -hmm. it's what we're trying to do in our home, and mm -hmm. sometimes we do a good job, other times we don't, but, you know, for the mm -hmm. we, we see things and glimpses of that, and it's it's so encouraging to see the kids make right decisions, yeah. right? But the only way they will is if you're teaching the discernment and you're exposing them to mm -hmm. things in the world, right? Mm -hmm. So... Um, and I, I, I just, this this one other quote, I mean, as you've heard, I'm quoting a lot of stuff because there's just lots of good stuff in this book. If you don't know out there already, I recommend this book. So <laughs> we'll have it in the show notes, a link to it on Amazon. You can get it, you can get it other places. Um, but anything that we talk about on this uh, during the podcast, as you know out there, we can you can go find it at thinkorphan.com um, on the page of this, of this podcast. But this quote is, he said, if we've raised our children to live creatively on the edge, loving God's world, they will likely be drawn to a part of the world that needs their light. And I think that's so true that God mm -hmm. will direct us where we're supposed to go when we are faithful to that, but also understand and know these other people and these other people and actually want to dive into that to mm -hmm. see. And it's it's beautiful things can happen when you mm -hmm. kind of go out into the unknown. Mm -hmm. But if you're not taught to do that, you mm -hmm. probably won't. Mm -hmm. Right? And you might rob yourself of the joy that God can show you mm -hmm. in the midst of something mm -hmm. that is the unknown. I think the scary part of that mm -hmm. is that the dark parts we are comfortable with uh, may not be the dark areas that our, our children are drawn to. Mm -hmm. So if, for example, if you're, you're living overseas cross-culturally, you as an anthropologist feel very comfortable with your children following in your footsteps, but if they told you, I feel called to enter the fashion industry of France uh, mm. or Wall Street, uh, it, you're suddenly terrified right, right. Uh, mm. because that feels like a very uh, amorphous, dark part of the world that you know very little about. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, f that is the thing that we, we really raise them with the philosophy and then we trust God with the, with the steering mechanism to steer them to something that's going to resonate with their hearts. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks again to Mark and Jan. Just such great friends, great people that I, I really did enjoy that conversation. And the fact that I was in Mark's office sitting in his chair that he gave me for the interview. So I felt it was felt a little, you know, it's a little different having an interviewing someone in their office from their side of the desk, you know. Uh, so I didn't go onto his computer or anything. I didn't try to, you know, really take over, but it was it was a lot of fun. So I hope you all out there could tell that and, and really understand that this is this is what they really have lived and they really um, are speaking from their heart. So so Karen, what would you, you take away from that interview? 
Yeah, it was a great interview as usual. Sometimes I sound like a broken recorder when I say that, but it was a great interview. And I get really excited when people are passionate about parenting. It's a huge part of my um, practice here in Louisville and around the nation. Um, So I get very excited when people are passionate about that as well. One of the things that really caught my attention was, um, I haven't read the book yet, but I don't, so I don't know if this is a chapter or kind of one of those big themes, but when they talk about delighting, in their children and delighting in kids. And I can tell you from a clinical perspective of a practicing clinician, it's so relevant. Kids absolutely know, I say this all the time in my office, kids know the temperature of our home. And I don't mean the thermostat. Kids know when parents are disagreeing. Kids know when parents are arguing. Kids know when parents aren't delighting in them as children. Kids can see that. And so I thought that was a great reminder and a great way of helping parents to understand how important it is to really desire to know your children. And that doesn't mean just simply providing for their needs, but it means, are you interested in knowing who they are of entering into their world? And, um, one of the ways that I kind of think through that and talk about that is intentional parenting. Am I so concerned about, and so interested in the overarching well-being of my child, all areas of my child's development that I'm willing to sacrifice my time so that I get to know my child more. That means that maybe I don't get to run in the Boston marathon. Maybe I don't get to do the triathlon. Maybe I don't get to go to, um, whatever, a trip to Europe because I am sacrificing my time to know my children. Mm, that's so good. And that's something that I've thought a ton about as my kids are, are getting older and, and as I'm learning them and their, in, in really their personalities. And as we talked about last week, the personality assessments and the disc and the fact that I'm so different than my kids and they're different from me and that's okay. That's not, you know, even though they are my biological children with my DNA in them, um, my gene pool and, and I know Becca as well. And the, it's our, t- our coming together made them, but it's still they're they're five very different children and to study each and I just think the thing that keeps coming to my head is my son uh, my my oldest son is is pretty much the opposite of me as far as introvert extrovert he's about as introverted as they come and believe it or not I'm an extrovert um and uh and so it's learning him, continually learning him and entering into his life. And as, they, as, as Mark was saying, it's, it's incarnational. And I think Jan was saying it as well. But he said sometimes that might mean wrestling on the ground in one season of their lives. Other times it's him just going and sitting on a surfboard with them. And for, for, for Drew and myself right, right now, it's watching Hawaii Five-0 together. You know, like just sitting in a room together. If we're in a car, it's like, hey, what, what book do you want to listen to? What podcast do you want to listen to? We're not going to sit there and talk all day. That's just not the way it's going to work with him. Um, I can engage him on certain issues, certain subjects, but, but for me, it was hard for a while. Cause I just like, Hey, what, what's going on? And he'd be like, you know, nothing, you know? And, and that just killed me. Cause I'm like, I'm not connecting with my son, but the fact of the matter is that's not how he's going to connect. And I need to understand that and know that. And I got to study him now, my daughter and a couple of other kids, but that may be exactly how they connect. And another kid, it may just snu- snuggling on the couch and watching a, a game with them. And, or, you know, in my case, it's my nine-year-old girl who, you know, it's very easy. She just watches soccer with me. And it's like, you know, if, if that's like the best thing ever for me, <laughs> you know, it's like dream actually. Um, but, uh, but that's, that's one of my kids. Not all of them are going to do that. So, that's just something that I, I was so 
encouraged to hear that from them. And, and really hopefully out there, it's, it's something that you hear and you say, okay, I do have to study and it's incarnational and makes me think too of James one twenty seven that visit orphans and widows in their affliction. That's how Jesus, that's the same word that was used for Jesus coming to earth. It was incarnational for them to understand and how can we really help in this space and how can we really come alongside and engage and become, you know, fully understanding what we're supposed to be doing. That's good. You know, a couple of other things that I gleaned from this interview, I want to touch on two more things if we have time. One of the first one that I think is incredibly helpful and relevant for parents, um, caregivers in all capacity is teaching our kids what that looks like to be a really good friend. And I thought that was helpful information. And essentially it's highlighting the fact that our kids, people that we're providing care for, not people, but kiddos that we're providing care for, they are learning about healthy relationships from not only our interaction with them, but our interaction with other people, with friends in our lives, and how important it is to help kids to learn how to be a good friend by modeling that as well. Mm. The other part that I thought was a really, really great reminder, and I think is very relevant to all parents, but particularly parents who have grown their families through foster care or adoption, and particularly parents who have brought older children into their homes, of just really understanding that that child's interests, that child's educational or career trajectory may be very different, not only from your educational and career trajectory, but their their interests and the things that they may be called to do may look very different. And I loved what he said at the very end, where hopefully if we're doing pieces of this, at least somewhat correctly, then our kids are going to be drawn to a part of the world, um, where they're, that needs their light. And I thought that was such a great word and such a great reminder of as much as I might want my kids to, whatever, like to run or to be interested in international events and international cultures and justice and social justice. My daughter, to be quite honest, she's interested in fashion. And so Mm -hmm. I think that even that example, I was like, yes, that is a, um, a topic that we've actually had multiple conversations about recently. And I've really had to challenge my own thoughts of what, what is my daughter's life look like if she is in Paris or if she is in New York creating fashion, she's a phenomenal seamstress. And so I think that very much she could be doing textiles in that area. So, um, anyway, I'm talking a lot, Phil, but I thought those were two really great topics. No, absolutely. And I, I think that, uh, you know, the idea of we want our kids to be literate in their culture and cross-culturally, right? That's what they talked about. But then also when we do that, it's likely, and not, and not maybe, I, I don't know if likely is the right word. It probably is likely that, you know, it's as Mark also said, the dark parts that we are comfortable with are not the dark parts that they will be drawn to. Right. And that's something to really, you know, keep in mind. It, it may be something that because we're raising them to do this, my mom, when she, my mom and dad, when they brought in swimmers from all over the world into our home to live for six to eight months to 12 months sometimes in our home, um, my mom was not expecting that I would then grow up to do a job where it took me to the, the darkest corners of the earth, you know, sometimes. And it freaks her out when I go to these places and she is a mom. So she's always worried about me, but it was, you know, I always say, Hey, it's your fault. 
You know, you raised me <laughs> in a way that I had this heart for the world and I actually understood. Mm-hmm. And that was something that, you know, I wasn't necessarily literate in all these and I still am not. I'm learning and continually learning, but it really is something to be important to be a learner. And, you know, and on that note, Karen, it's something that, you know, we talked a little bit about that, you know, all these things, you know, speaking of being literate cross-culturally, not all these things in these books will apply in every culture around the world. They won't necessarily apply in different socioeconomic uh, areas, you know, potentially inner city, you know, different parts of the world. It may not apply. Now, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, as I was listening to this interview, that was something that kept popping up for me as I, I can't wait to read this book. I think the ideas are, are really great. I think they're grounded in um, really awesome principles, but it just kept popping up in my head. I wonder what this would look like in a lower socioeconomic status. I wonder what this would look like in a home where both parents have to work or where a child is being raised by a grandparent. And I don't think that it means that these um, great and wise parenting um like instructions and parenting wisdom, I don't think that means that they are not going to work. And I don't think it means that we shouldn't listen to them. I just think it means that it probably looks a little bit different. It probably doesn't look, um, exactly the same and maybe as, as neat and nice as it was explained, but it's, it's an understanding. And I think an intentionality with which we approach parenting our kids. And so it's not going to look the same, but I think, uh, that intentionality of helping our kids to know about culture of helping our kids to, um, have a creative mindset of delighting in our kids. Those are things that are absolutely cross-cultural and it doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's so critical to understand in so many of these things is to not throw the baby out with the bathwater and really to say, you know, the principles, it's like what we tried to do in In Pursuit of Orphan Excellence where we said, hey, let's have a framework here. Let's not, it's not a model. It's not something that's a, you know, a cookie cutter that you throw in any culture and it'll work, but it's something that, you know, you and I both, when we were writing to said, how can we frame a conversation? How can, and I think that that's what this is doing as well. It's really trying to change the narrative to go from, you know, let's be a, a crushing our kids dreams, you know, because it's not real to, Hey, you know what? We're not going to say no to that creativity. We're not going to say no to that intentionality. We're not going to say no to that dreaming, um, to be out there to hopefully, you know, accomplish things that we can do. So that's, that's definitely something that I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up before we started recording, because I think it is important to not throw it out and go, this would never work here. There's a bunch of, you know, a white couple out there who's just saying these things from their upper middle class and, and they, you know, have these opportunities that I'll never have. Well, yeah, some of that's true, but it's also to say, you know, look, there's some things here that, that really do apply. So how can we learn from each other um, in those ways? So hopefully that's what's, that's what's happening. That's something we're able to do. And, you know, with that, I want to uh, go to the recommendations today with, with uh, you, Dr. Karen. You have a recommendation for us today that uh, hopefully we can learn from as well. So again, as we talk about, we can continually be learning. And this is a recommendation. It, it's going to shock you out there when you hear, hear the author of this book. I know for some of those of you who've been following this podcast, but we're always here to surprise. So Karen, what, what do you have? I do have a good recommendation today, and yes, it is from someone that you've heard that you know I'm quite a fan of. It is my man, Dr. Dan Siegel, once again, but this book is an oldie but a goodie. It's, I don't know. 10, 15 years old now, but I think it's relevant coming off of the Foreman interview. They, they talked in the interview. We didn't get to touch very much, um, in our dialogue, Phil, but they talked about starting with us as parents. What does that look like to take kind of, um, a look into 
my life and how I was parented and how that impacts my parenting styles. And particularly if there are some styles that we would like to change, if there are some things that we want to make sure and tweak and adjust as we're parenting or providing care for children in our homes. And so the book, here it is, the recommendation, it is called Parenting from the Inside Out, and it is by Dr. Dan Siegel and Mary Hartzell. And this book, I'll be honest with you, it is a little tiny bit clinical jargony, but I think that it's helpful and I think that it's relevant. I pretty much require slash ask all of the families that I work with to read or listen to this book because it's so helpful to understand how your story and how you were raised, your attachment how that impacts the way that you interact right now in your relationships and particularly the way that you're interacting with the child that you're providing care for. Research is pretty fairly clear that we know that when we are in a stressful and hectic environment that we tend to revert to the way that we were parented. Even if we're excellent connection-based parenting, positive parenting strategies, that when we are stressed or in a high stress situation, we tend to revert to the ways that we were parented. And so if we know that and we understand some of the ways that we were parented and um, maybe some things that we would like to change, it can be so helpful in providing care for the children in our home, especially children who have joined our families through foster care or adoption. So the recommendation, the book is called Parenting from the Inside Out. Yeah. And that's one that uh, I have not read yet. And, you know, I'm hopeful that everyone out there listening, you know, since you've been listening to Karen over the last few months and you've heard her wisdom through the Ask Dr. Karen, you can go back and listen to her episode and maybe even Mandy Howard's episode as well. And then hopefully that will help you understand the jargon in this book much better. So, you know, and then it won't be jargon anymore. Just be part of your vocabulary because quite honestly, these things that, you know, in all, in all seriousness, even if you thought that was joking, which it was kind of, you know, tongue in cheek when I said that, but I will say that it's so important for us to understand these concepts that are in these books, because if we're working with children, if we're working, whether it's as a parent, whether it's in, you know, working in an orphan care in some way with, with children that may not be your biological children, um, you know, and you haven't even adopted them or fostered, but, but whether you're adoptive parents, foster parents, these, these concepts are critical for us to understand. And, you know, so I, I, I recommend the book. I haven't read it yet, but I don't do that very often, but I'm going on, you know, I'm just piggybacking on Karen and Siegel and, and his stuff is, is so good. And, and it's something too, that I just, I was talking with Karen as well. Caroline Leaf is another one who's talking about a lot of the, the brain science behind this. And she's a, a neuroscientist who's a, who's a Christian and, and she's written a couple books that I've recommended on the show already. And, and one is switch on your brain. She's going to be at CAFO this year. So if you're going to be going to the summit and you have a chance to go to the research symposium, I strongly recommend that because she has some amazing wisdom as well. So not to take away from your recommendation because that was your recommendation. So I apologize for doing that. I just totally usurped it, but that's okay. With that, everyone out there, thanks again for your download. Thanks for engaging this conversation. Thanks for being a part of this. I just, I hope and pray that you take everything that you're learning and you'll use it to help you to understand how you can love orphan and at-risk children better and better each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. Bye-bye. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.